Hi, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And I am thrilled about the show this week because last week we talked to somebody who had chosen to leave New Orleans. And the subject of it was um, to leave or stay. And he had chosen to leave and went to California to seek his fortune. And he's a cannabis merchant now. Um, on the other hand, there are many of us who are uh, just so heart and soul committed to New Orleans that we are here and building our careers, our, our nonprofits, our businesses, and our um, love for this. It just keeps growing. So Marianne Miller is with us, and she is the program manager for a program called Stay Local that works at helping people to build their careers here. And Milton Fernandez is a wine expert and um, merchant, and he probably has some other titles, but he is CEO, uh, co-CEO with his wife of his Vino Fine Wine and Spirits Company. And um, I, the, this is such a, a wonderful story. I had a prior conversation with... Um, uh, with Milton, and uh, I am just so impressed with uh, what he's been able to do here. And I want to open, however, with Marianne, who will tell us about Stay Local and its mission to try to encourage people like um, Milton. Thank you, Milton, for being here. Thanks, Jean, for having us on. I'm thinking Milton first, because as a business owner, I'm sure he knows how um, challenging um, it is and um, scheduling his time in this way. And so one thing that um, is really helpful for those of us who want our funds, our hard-earned dollars, the money recirculating in the economy to remember is that it stays local when we support local businesses. So Stay Local was founded on the idea that um, there was you know, a knowledge gap at the time, different technology, a different type of internet um, usage. The, um, founded on, on the idea that, you know, for those persons who are dedicated to New Orleans in some of the ways Jean mentioned and, and want New Orleans businesses to thrive, one of the best ways that they can do that is the power in their pocket. I'm going to choose a local business. If I have the options and they are a chain where the funds don't recirculate in the economy, and um, you know, leave town and go to a headquarters elsewhere in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world. If I have a similar option that I know is a locally owned business, I'm going to choose that. And so we created a online business directory that allowed people to find those locations. And that's one of the things we invite businesses um, like Milton's to do, like Milton's analysis to do, is to to have a footprint there. Um, now we have obviously a lot of different ways that technology allows business owners uh, tools, but there's also with that growing ease of entering the digital marketing market, there's also additional competition. And so at Stay Local, we continue to refine that message and help customers see, consumers see that uh, as customers of businesses, they may, um, of, of locally owned businesses, they may be rewarded uh, with more than just the uh, the exchange of you know funds for a good or service. They may also find out about a, the community involvement of the business owner or other ways in which um, the the business owner committing to New Orleans as they do um, improves all of our 
quality of life, our the the local economy bottom line, um, and allows us, you know, to be able to to really plan ahead in uncertain times for the the commercial areas that we already have. If it's Metairie Road, if it's um, part of downtown Covington, if it's Magazine Street, you know it's going to be there, and you can make choices as a consumer, as a resident, as a student, based on a lot of that. And that's the kind of thing that big companies that pull up stakes and don't care about the ripple effect that they have don't do. Um, so these are all the ways in which we've always um, been able to get information out from stay local to consumers, and then the businesses are our partners in that, and the network of businesses that we um, that we host and connect to one another, support one another, and and help us carry that message forward. And um, I like to say that one of the important things for me, um, uh, other than the policy and the the um, really the the reasoning of trying to make sure that we help. Uh, grow the businesses and, and grow the careers of our people. Um, when you buy locally, there's also no surprises. So I hate that surprise of getting a garment, pair of shoes, or I don't usually order food uh, that didn't work, doesn't fit. And then, oh, you say you can send it back. Well, I'm not a sender backer. So, I, you know, stuff stock, stockpiles that I can't use. So, uh, there's there's practical reasons in addition to policy reasons and and if you're someone that has a sustainable goal in mind for your purchases there's lots of things that could mean it could mean packaging it can mean distance that something traveled but it also means those returns if we're talking about amazon and the people that line up for those free amazon return boxes they've they've been tracked those boxes have been tracked and they do not a lot of those products do not recirculate they're not allowed to be sold again they end up buried in the trash oh oh okay and i just saw online a, a story about um uh clothes that wind up in, in in the in the trash piles and some very funny comics that show it that are uh, dispiriting um let me go to you milton i i'm impressed with the fact that you you came here as did i at one point in my life 50 years ago. It was supposed to be five years in New Orleans. That's now 50 years. Um, and uh, you made a, you, you had a decision to make to come here. And I didn't really, um, I don't know that much about that. So I want to check in on that. And then you needed to make a decision about doing a business. And then you need to make a decision about staying here. So I'm real curious about, you know, the thought process, the experiences that you <laughs> contributed to that decision-making at those critical points goodness why would i why would anybody run away from new york right um oh no, i that, can think of a lot of reasons but yeah no me too and that was that was something that well with me um and it's it's just so i look back on my life and i look at at moments where like you know something told me hey go right don't go left and i did that and it turned out well and then sometimes i didn't listen and then it was just kind of like you know now i got a bigger issue to deal with. Um, I was actually supposed to go to school at the Pacific University of Hawaii. Uh, and like with everything that's going on over there, I probably think that New Orleans is one of those places that does draw you in. And I've never been here. I'd never come down. Uh, it was on uh, the re recommendation of, uh, of a high school English teacher. She's like, you got to go where there's life. You got to go where there's, you know, a feel. You got to go where there's community. 
and yeah, I came down here and, and I completely fell in love with it so much so that I never wanted to go back home, right? Um, I don't think that I was ready. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't think I was ready for it, right? Because I was just like this young kid, impressionable, going to school. But like everything else that I fell in love with, with New Orleans, like with my food background in New York, like the food here, just being able to see so much more, right? And like, not just the usual suspect, but like the quality of food here and the execution and oh my God, the wine, right? And just so many people that knew so much about service. That's what kept me here. And I think I only left four years to, to join the Marine Corps and then head down back here. And it was just that pull of like, you you go to New Orleans once and then every other time you're just trying to, you're just trying to get back, you know? And I firmly believe that where on paper it doesn't it doesn't look like a good decision you're like my gosh like doing what what we're doing right and then with what we were talking about um you can go to a restaurant you can order wine if you don't like it well tough luck well if you didn't know about wine that's that's the thing but if like you order your favorite wine and you're like hey that's my favorite wine this is not it this does not taste like that the knowledge of the person that serves you the wine has to match your own right and down here, you saw that where you don't get bad wine unless you specifically look for it. I said this last time where, you know, you don't get a bad meal here unless you look for it. And somebody who's like so food centric where in New York, you've got all these restaurants that kind of like open and close and open and close. And here people fight for good restaurants. And you've got like cornerstones of the neighborhood where like Commander's Palace for the longest time, like that's that's the the Garden District's kitchen. Like, that is it. And we had pride when we worked there. We were like, we have that standard to maintain. These people could eat anywhere in the world, but they choose to join us for dinner. And that is, that is, that is, you know, that was, that was a high, high compliment of when you have high net worth individuals that choose to go to your restaurant every night. You're just like, my goodness, I guess we're doing something great. And that accolade and that pride and that, that sense of detail oriented, uh, you know, mindset will just carry you wherever you go and whatever you do. And it served me well. Uh, and I saw that down here, like the obsessive compulsiveness and food and, and taking care of people. And uh, we lost a lot of that during the pandemic. That was something that I didn't touch upon before. But like with all those restaurants, when they closed down, I mean, we modeled our business after not necessarily the executive chef, not necessarily the restaurant owner, because they could just buy whatever wines whenever, right? They have people on call, but like maybe, maybe your back waiter, right? Maybe your front waiter, maybe your captain, maybe people that like want to talk about the region, but don't want to shell out $230 for a bottle of wine. They can come to our shop and they're like, oh my God, I know this region. I know these growers. I know these wines. And they're at a retail price point and not at a, at a restaurant price point, which is much higher. So we modeled our business model after somebody like me, somebody who wanted to learn more about wine and didn't want to spend a lot of money, but like we were quality driven. So the fact that we saw that in New Orleans and the fact that I saw the need for that, that we have really great food and the wine is kind of lacking where like, you know, you go into whatever, whatever, whatever other outlets sell wine and God help you because you have 10,000 skews staring you in the face. Whereas here it's more of a concierge type experience because that's just that's just what I know and like you know call it laziness or call it innovation but like that's what I know and I know how to take care of people and that's that's just been what drove me here and then what I love about here and one of the reasons why we decided to stay was because here people like being taken care of 
you would go to any restaurant in New York and you can tell the, yeah, I don't care how much your beef costs. I want it well done. Like, that's just the way I eat it. And they're like, this is a $200 cut of meat. And they're like, I don't care. I am right. But here, you would be hard pressed to find anybody that would do that with, with a high end restaurant, right? Like, you'll, you'll take your advice from them. You'll take your pairings from them. And everything that hits your plate is going to be wonderful. Well, with us, we just show you things that you told me that you like. And then you can try them. And then you can buy them. And I think for me, the biggest reward is that aha moment where people are like, oh, my God, I didn't know wine could taste this good. And I was like, I know, right? Like, it doesn't have to be tart. It doesn't have to be better. It doesn't have to be aggressive. It could be like like soft and delicate and, and just like a lot closer to mineral water. And wouldn't you prefer to drink that, you know, something with a lot more softer notes to it. And people here appreciate that. And we're in a business where. It's more of like you think people are going to make fun of you or look down on you on what you don't know. And I mean, I don't know everything there is to know about wine. Anybody that tells you that they know everything is to know about wine is, is completely lying to you because there's just so much, right? But if you have a foothold, right? And kind of like cooking, you have that kind of like passion that's driving you and you find out a little bit more, a little bit more where you can kind of verify your prejudices and just like, I really enjoy that. I want more of that. And they're like, well, if you like the ones from here, there's another section all the way across the other end of the world that those wines come like in this style. And then you kind of figure that like they went to that region, fell in love with it, learned how to make wine like that. And then they went back home. We're seeing that with uh, with a lot of Middle Eastern wines. They're, they're actually been producing wine for about 8,000 years, but they're sending people to, uh, to Bordeaux, to California, to the institutes where you get great oenology programs and they're coming back and they're not changing the game, but they're making their wineries more adaptable to what the wine business is now. And now you're seeing Lebanese wines, they're seeing Croatian wines, they're seeing wines from, uh, from Armenia, you're seeing wines from uh, the Teilani Valley, right? You're seeing all these stuff over there. We've been making this and we know it's good, but like they didn't want to compete with, with big, big wines of the world. And like, it's not about competition. It's about like bringing more to the table. And, and to us, that is in essence, like what, what, what this city is about. Like you bring your brass instrument. I bring my drums. Somebody brings wind, somebody brings strings. And like, we, we will play, we will have a party and we will enjoy Every bit of, of whatever whatever's coming to the table. Well, I think and, what's, so, what's so interesting about New Orleans is that it has this core of traditional. Um, uh, we in the cultural world we we talk a lot about our legacy that we are yeah. a very powerful cultural legacy, but at the same time that we are committed to our legacy more so than many places. Uh, we are also committed always to originality and innovation. And um, I, I think that what's happening since I've been here, and, and it's, it's gone from, you know, that sort of um, uh, top list of places that people return to over and over again. And Galatoire's is one of my um, uh, clubs. Restaurant, yeah. Restaurants here are clubs. You know, you go there and you're going to run into people, you know. At the same time, you know, I'm going to go to restaurants on Canal Street um, in the mid-city area that uh, I'm just crazy about, or my my neighborhood Degas Cafe, Cafe Degas. Um, they're they're the, my haunts, but mm -hmm. I, I I absolutely love reading Ian McNulty in the newspaper, who has always got a new um, owner uh, taking over and, and and creating some kind of a new melange of 
New Orleans and something new. So what you're what you're speaking to me about these other wines is really breaking through to a girl who norm a uh, girl really. I mean, I'm a little bit got a birthday coming up next week that is we'll multi take girl. Multi multi. You're as old as you feel. That's how we that's how we look at it. <laughs> well, and that varies, but um, <laughs> so I but you know I'm sort of uh, obsessed about um uh. Australian and New Zealand, particularly New Zealand Great uh, makers, yeah. wines, and but I've got to get out of that. I've got to be a little bit more open. Um, I, I I love red wines, but um, I have to. I don't know much about them, so um, I'm listening to you talk about all these other uh, Middle Eastern wines, and I'm saying, oh my God, I've I've got to get out of my obsession and 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 uh, work a little harder at learning now it seems like one of the things that you are involved in doing is mentoring and teaching and sharing what you've learned and i want to hear just a little bit more about that because um, that's something that i think i'm hearing from people who uh, are here in the creative economy in general not just in the food arena right you know, in, in culture and music and, and uh, filmmaking and so on. There's there's a desire to be supportive uh, in a mentoring way of the younger generation. Well, when you go to a restaurant, you're going to pay a much higher percentage for your wine. Um, but you do that because you're paying for the master sommelier. You're paying for the wine program. You're paying for every single bad wine that person has tasted. You're paying for the knowledge that that person's not going to put those wines on your table. You're paying for their wine program. You're paying for the people that come in and are like, all right, we want to try this. And then they tried it. didn't necessarily work. You're paying for, again, somebody holding your hand. And the thing is, if you're in the industry and if you're in the business, it's it's a very competitive but kind of like cross organizational thing where like you'll see people from the buyer side go to the seller side meaning like the people that are selling to you might be the people that are going to be buying from you you know uh further down the line and i say that because it's it's all a very we're very good competitors but we're also very friendly competitors because we're we're in the we're in the realm of great wine and in the restaurant world we love great food we love great wine and I kind of like to give away the knowledge for free because as a lot of people know, they're like, well, this isn't people take for granted what they know. And I think it's just such a shame that like you're technically and like very efficient and very knowledgeable about what you choose to do for work. But like, you're like, it's wine, it's alcohol. Like it's, it's not that complex. It's not, or like, it's so daunting. It's overwhelming. There's like thousands of years of history, but like, Knowing why people don't or can't or won't drink red wine versus white wine, knowing why something gives you a headache, knowing why something doesn't sit well with you. Um, just that, like there was there was an Italian uh, young woman that came into my shop and says, my grandmother is mortified because I can't drink any red wine anymore. And I'm like, it's the red wine you're drinking. Like it, it's a very, very thin veil that like a bunch of massive corporations are putting over people where they're adding and I think we talked about this before, they add so much garbage to the wine that it hardly classifies them for people that have sensitive palates and for people that have like reactionary uh, immune systems, like it'll just send them haywire. 
Whereas in Europe, they do it a lot cleanly and like there's more rules about what you can add on to it. And I gave her a really nice Italian red wine, a very delicate Italian red wine. And she came back really happy the next day. She's like, oh my goodness, I can drink red wine again. Like that little bit of knowledge. Like I wasn't going to say like, you got to pay me for this or like, I'm going to, you know, gatekeep this from you. The enjoyment of wine. So what does that do for me? That gives me the ability to gain a customer. What does that do for her? That allows her to advertise what we're doing here, wherever she goes in the world, right? And she travels quite often. And now we're in that conversation. And for the longest time we haven't been, and it's been kind of insulting that people are like, oh, great food in New Orleans, but like the alcohol is trash, they'll get blacked out drunk. Like, and that's not anything, right? <laughs> but like when, when you're young, uh, right? And you're like, we're having a party in New Orleans. So like, that's the thing. And I'm like, we should be known if we're known for great food. And it does a really big disservice to like, the sellers of some of the great, great restaurants that we have in the city that, that I've been, you know, extremely lucky to work at and the wines up to par and we have it here and we have more of it here than I dare say a lot of other places. Um, and we had the best cooks per capita here. So they know great wine will pair up with their great food. And when they take you to their home, they're like, we want to impress you because of what's coming off of my grill, but they can't go to their restaurant and be like, Hey, sir, can I buy this bottle? I know I want to buy it a little bit above uh, above cost so that we're not losing money. And it's like, you don't want to ever do that when you're working at a high prestige place because you're like, you're putting on the wrong foot and then here you don't have to. You're getting these really great wines of that you have a little bit knowledge of and you can expand your knowledge. And then sometimes people are like, oh my God, what I love about this one. And then we learn together. So yeah. if I were to get keep knowledge, that would completely block me from the knowledge that's coming in and I'm constantly learning. So that's, that's one of the greater parts about being very uh, low barrier as far as like off-putting people. And we share our knowledge for free because I think the enjoyment of wine should be for everybody. Milton, um, uh, I want to go to uh, ask Marianne to relate um, uh, how this works in other disciplines and other um, products. But before I do, I just want to real quickly not forget to ask you exactly where people can come to enjoy your product. 8314 Oak Street. We're right next to the world famous Maple Leaf. Um, we moved. Oh, we used to be in South Carrollton. Yeah, we're right here. Uh, we're open every day. It's just my wife and I, as, as as we grow, as we expand, we'll be able to hire more employees. But right now, it's it's us. And I mean, I think the, the pandemic really put a lot of people on the back foot, and we're just lucky to survive, right? Oh. Um, but yeah, people can see us here on Oak Street. Uh, it's the Oak Street Corridor, uh, and we're, we're, we're happy to be here. I'm, I'm glad you survived, and I'm sure that uh, you, as so many others, and I'm going to ask Marianne about this, figured out during the pandemic um, some of the other avenues for development that um, are available to them based on their skills, their knowledge, and the marketplace uh, came to play. And so uh, somebody who might have been working in a restaurant that uh, was shut down because it was you know, all inside and uh, people couldn't come in there, um, turned around and did food trucks or people who were doing food trucks turned around and found a stationary location. There were all kinds of um, uh, changes that evolved out of that pandemic. Some of them not so great. There's a rough thing I think that's happening right now with people's health that I've noticed um, that uh, and, and the medical industry is uh, something I, I'm definitely going to be focusing on going forward because I've dealt with a husband who had a bad accident in the health industry, which is kind of frightening. But um, Marianne, tell me about um, some of the other um, product discipline areas 
and and how they have um, evolved and and uh, uh, tried tried alternative ways to do what they do. I think something Melton said that is so able to be applied to other businesses is this idea of like not gatekeeping and sharing information is that um, you know there's a difference between just looking at the report the sales reports of like this thing is selling if you don't have a lot of responsibility for how that thing is marketed you may just be documenting that something that was marketed to people that you happen to sell is selling but the way in which Milton just described like it's a sharing of information he gets a response from his customer as well as he provides the education and information is really what informs it. So I think in um, in one principle to why local works for be for those, any of us, everyone's money is important to them. One principle to why local works is that it really reflects the values and the taste and the character of the community. So I think one thing that we can say for sure that's happened um, with businesses coming out of COVID is that people have had uh, to restructure in ways. It might mean shorter weeks, um, service also, as well as retailers, but like there are, are some offices, some business office type atmospheres where you send an email and, and you get an automatic reply that they've, they've gone to a four day work week. And that's, we saw that in the deep, intensity for restaurants as well in COVID of like Thursday through Sunday. But I think there's there's that element and there's also the element of like people being, you know, reunited with this like family atmosphere as they were forced to in lockdown, you know, brought has brought to some service oriented businesses, some office environments, even if they're back to work in person, they may have a four day work week because they just said, you know, it's it's better to have a few longer days and have people have more time with their families. So that's one thing. But then that also, that reflects a lot of other things. And um, businesses who, you know, um, were really nimble and found a way to keep themselves up and running so that this post-COVID atmosphere, you know, when there was um, finally sort of that release of pent-up demand, um, have found that there's just, there's so the supply chain breaks were, you know, were in so many places that people have definitely changed a lot about how they not just source, but how they manage the disappointment or the disruption of a supply chain break. And that relies on technology, but in relying on technology, you're relying on other business owners in your community that know about those products, this tool, that tool. Now there's this, I can customize it for your business. Let me show you how you'll work with your POS. You know, just it sounds, so it, Yeah, it sounds like a lot of, again, kind of collaborative, innovative. Right. Um, and, and flexibility. I think one of the things that were coming out of this era that we've been in, and, and, and we can add all those disasters that we, um, sure. you know, summarily have to deal with, like the one that's out in the Atlantic right now, or the one that hopefully is going to Texas and not here. I mean, we, we've learned how to um, be flexible, how to figure out a way to uh, handle and, and um, strategize around the changes that are happening. But I love the idea of, of the introduction of um, uh, different products from different ethnicities in different parts of the world. And I think that's how we got started. 
We started with African, Native American, French, Spanish, Italian, and, and we're growing out from that with, with all kinds of um, new mixtures. And, uh, uh, you know, it's always fun to think about places like, you know, the kosher Cajun, where you have um, a mixture of Cajun influences as well as Jewish influences. And then you have so many Spanish and French. It's just a, it really is a one great big melange. They, a woman who worked for me some years ago used to use a word that I have not figured out the, the derivation of. She would say that there was something that was malela. So malela, as far as I can tell from her, meant leftovers mixed up. So it's it's ma ela, and uh, like and I don't know exactly the origin. And you know, a lot of people think they know the origin of the word lanyap, but they don't. It's not French. It's actually indigenous Native American out of the um, oh, Central America. I oh yeah, I mean it, it's it's amazing. There's actually a tribe that is is it's spelled differently. It's Lan Yap as an L A N I P A, uh -huh. uh, you know, so on. I I don't remember the exact spelling, but um, I think that uh, this is a this is really a keynote of New Orleans. Is this melange? Of course, that was true in New York too, in a in a different way. But it, it here it's a little bit softer and gentler, and a little bit more, as you said, um, uh, Milton. Not so much competitive as sharing of information and ideas. Guys, I could talk to you for the rest of the day, but um, and we have a limited amount of time. I would love to ask you if there's one key point that you were thinking that you wanted to make that I didn't elicit, and then um, I will be calling you again and getting you back on the show because I've definitely gotten the idea of um, doing this more. I mean, I do it on a regular basis, but I feel like I really want to focus in on making sure that we are covering the full range of our disciplines in the creative fields. And this is one of them. So is there anything, any closing thoughts? I mean, I think for us, what we love to do is it's not about imbibing alcohol it's not about getting out of your mind it's not about kind of like losing control it's about sharing something with the people you love and you care about that's why we love parties we love get-togethers we love rehearsal dinners we love that that celebration right where like to me vino has always been taking care of people and that little bit that we just put something on the table and then you just bring your friends your family and you enjoy that over the love that you have over one another that to me is me doing business, right? And it's just really awesome because it is more to me that people want to gather in our space, that people want to share with the knowledge that we have and treat themselves better and then feel better afterward. And like, yeah, you can have a really clean wine and you'd be surprised that you're like, oh man, I don't have to. And then you're just you're just drinking to enjoy it, right? And it pairs really well with food and it's just so that's how really uh, that's awesome. Yeah. I've felt about drinking is that mm -hmm. I, I really drink for the enjoyment of the taste. Uh, yeah. Marianne, a closing thought? Yeah, I think tell a friend, you know, the next time someone says, all right, we're going to go and drop name of non-locally owned business, you know, just gently remind them like that might be what's good for you. It's not good for me. If you want to meet up, I'd rather do this other thing. 
Okay, and then you can do what I do and that's, and, and that's uh, rant a little bit about how I have no desire to ever buy anything from Amazon because I don't <laughs> need to give Jeff Bezos any extra dimes at the all. Bajillion, again, support my local uh, vendors and creators. Thank you guys so much. Look forward to our next conversations and um, keep on keeping on. Cheers. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Now we have another small business owner in the city who has one of the most creative, demanding, um, and personal enterprises. She is a hairdresser at a time when I think the creativity of the world has settled on the heads of Black women, and they are doing the most extraordinary um, creations. Um, not that white women aren't doing a little bit more than we used to do in the old days, but some, not me, but some are wearing their hair long like you. But um, in, in general, there's really kind of a, um, a, a particularly creative and original and um, just a lot of different looks. I mean, there are just so many different things going on. So I'm really impressed with it. And I think it's got to be on the one hand, really fun but also a lot of work. And so a great way to make a living in the city of New Orleans, where we um, are very interested in appearances being aesthetic because we live in such an aesthetic city. Um, and, and it's gotta be tough to work with things that are so different and original and, and keep your customers happy. How does right. that? <laughs> well, it, it definitely is. Um... You do have to be original, but also I feel as though the beauty industry is, is ever changing. Like there, there's always something new to look forward to. Um, I know at one point it was one thing to have a nice wig or, you know, to have like a nice weave, but now they have like frontals and closures and they're moving into textures and um different hairstyles are become are being accepted in the workplace. So um just being able to stay relevant and and to stay um uh to, to stay on top of the the trending styles also it is definitely fun. I will say that I do enjoy it. There's there's trending styles, but again there's so many different looks. Um, it's, 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 I've, I'm kind of, uh, frankly, jealous of the opportunities of the various kinds of ways that, uh, that um, you're able to create these different looks, whether it's with long braids or long loose hair or um, creations that circle the top of the head, uh, things that fall into the back of the head. I mean, how did all this come on so fast? That's one of my, I, I, you know, all of a sudden it was, we, we, we moved into this period of extreme creativity with hair. How, how did that happen? I think the, um, the want to be different, um, the, the beauty feel, like I say, is always changing. So at one point, um, we had a time where women would only like keep their hair up tight or, you know, they would like twist it up and wrap it and keep it like close, close styles, like pinned to their hair. Where like now, you know, they're coming up with different ways where we can wear our hair straight and we can keep it straight while it's hot or we can braid it up and we can put like a full unit on top or we can put like a closure on top. Um, I think just different things, whether it's, uh, you know, the want for a different look, whether it's the temperature, like the weather in New Orleans is crazy right now. So we have to be innovative when it comes to, you know, like what type of styles you're wearing or when it comes down to protecting your hair even. Um, 
like locks and uh, like lock extensions, those weren't always accepted in the workplace. And so now to be able to have for those type of styles to be accepted, you know, people are getting more creative even with, with the natural style. So it's like, okay, we can do locks. Like, okay, I'm going to twist them up. I'm going to color them this way or I'll braid them and then I'll take them down and have like a real funky look. You know, it's just, I think just the demand to be different is, is what keeps it changing. It's, it, it really has got to be a lot of fun. And, yeah. and, and it probably is, is generates a good income because that's a lot of work <laughs> that you're having to do. And so you have to charge when you're doing a lot of work. So I, I think that um, uh, it, it's uh, people have always been drawn to the beauty business. Uh, my, my own aunt was a beautician and I worked in her shop on weekends when I was in um, uh, public school. Um, both uh, primary and, and, and secondary in high school. And um, I, I mean, I could see the creativity back then, but this is, a, this is an explosion. Yeah. Really. Now, I'm, and I will say, even for myself now, I find myself sometimes struggling to keep up with different, um, different styles that they're coming up with. Like now the women are wearing like full, like frontal units from like side to side. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to cross into that territory. That's a whole nother game. So yeah. I'm going to stay in my part. <laughs> um, how, how do you see this going forward for you? Um, you're doing hairdressing. Is that the, is that the major part of your um, uh, enterprise? And, and tell me about how you balance the rigors of running a business with the creativity of, of creating the hair creations that you do? Well, I will definitely say um, my business, it does have a few different avenues. So while I am a hairstylist behind the chair, I, my salon is also a space for other stylists to be able to come in and work as independent contractors. Um, and then I also, I do try to pour back into like the newer stylists that come in. So I'm, it's not quite a mentorship program, although they will call me their mentor and I, I am appreciative. Um, I I do that as well. But when it comes down just to um staying relevant and you know, continuing to I guess like with when it comes into marketing and when it comes into um making sure I have a clientele, like staying on top of social media, trying to make sure like, you know, you know, like what's new as far as what works when it comes down to marketing. So like reels are really popular right now on Instagram. And for my business, that's something that has really, really helped me. Um, mm -hmm. it, it has grown even my following on social media, on TikTok, on Instagram and on Facebook. I have reached so many more people just from putting out different videos with music over them. And um, women see that and it's like, okay, I like that. I want that look. I like what she's doing. This is a protective style. And so it draws them into, um, it brings them to my page. They see my website and then they say, oh, she sells hair. And so just, just finding different ways to, um, continue to move forward I know as a stylist I won't be able to be behind the chair forever I've been doing hair at this point for 22 years and my hands they what? they hurt I started braiding at the age of 10 like I started doing friends in the neighborhood and wow. so now to be a, a um, licensed cosmetologist and to have my salon it's like I need to try to be creative with my revenue streams because I won't be able to stand up all day or you know just yeah. go as hard as I do. So right. definitely be creative. 
And um, I, it sounds like you're also um, gotten into dealing with the younger people and the mentoring and community. I, I think uh, we mentioned in a previous conversation that one of the things that really has you committed to New Orleans is, is a combination of the mentoring opportunity and community and the culture right. of the city. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I love the fact that like the women that I service, most of them are from New Orleans. So to be able to have those conversations about, you know, life before Katrina, life after Katrina, um, the crime, the education, the politics, uh, it's, it's really refreshing to be able to talk to people from my community and to know that they can relate to what I'm going through. It's like, well, somebody went through your car. Somebody went through my car too, and they they went through my hair, and they they did this. So just to be able to have to to be able to, to relate to you know my community, not only that, but to also be able to pour into them because I can say I do. Um, I can I I I would say like my clients they do admire what it is that I'm doing, and so they'll ask me different business questions. You know, but what do you think about this? Or even with my network being what it is, I can introduce this client to that client. I I love my community. It, it's it's amazing. And how do you feel about your future in New Orleans? My future in New Orleans, I think New Orleans will always be home. Um, as a stylist, I do still plan to like travel to other cities to work, maybe like temporarily, like a weekend here or there. But I think New Orleans will always be home. I can't see myself like moving away, not not for too long. Like that, that's New Orleans is home. Well, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're going to be here. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing more of your creations. This has been really a wonderful um, opportunity to talk with Amber Nicole Williams. And Amber, if somebody wants to check in with you, what's the best way for them to do it? Um, I am, well, first they can visit my website, which is ambernicolehair.com. And Nicole is N-I-C-O-L-E. Um, they can also visit me on Instagram or TikTok at Amber Nicole Hair. And I have everything linked um, in my bios on those uh, platforms as well. Thank okay. you so much for your time. And no uh, keep on, keep on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Karen Oker is one of the team of leaders who has been working on making sure that as we go forward with developments in Armstrong Park, they reflect the history, the cultural legacy of not only the park area, but the area around it. And specifically, all of the uh, cultural organizations and artists and, and residents who care about Armstrong Park, which is a whole lot of us. And as, as I think the city found out when, um, I've never seen such a spontaneous community uprising as I have in, in my 51 years in New Orleans. And that's not because I'm 51, but because I you know, was somewhere else for a while before that. Um, as I saw in reaction to a kind of really um, uh, tone deaf 
approach to doing something in Armstrong Park. And um, and it's it's kind of part of a, a, a certain kind of backwards legacy because from back in when back in the day when I first came here and I was working um, first politically and then uh, I came here with the McGovern campaign and my husband who decided to stay in the South after a project here. Um, but when I, from the very beginning, um, the efforts to try to make Armstrong Park what it could be reflecting its history kept backfiring. It just, just, it, it just hasn't seemed to be able to come together. So um, you, you had the effort to do Armstrong Park, which was supposed to be like Tivoli Gardens and Denmark or some Scandinavian country. I think it was Denmark. I don't remember for sure. But um, now I, I have a way of saying in my newsletters, which I don't know if you get to see, but in my letters for my newsletters, I often say when things really get bad, when they get worse, they can get, that's when the, the whole um, game changes and the good opportunities come out. Because if it's bad enough, people just say, hey, wait a minute, that's not what people think should happen. And that's what happened here. So now you're updating us because remarkably, there has been such an interesting sort of sustained coalition, what can I call it, of, of, of residents and, and uh, nonprofits and, uh, and other interests with the city that started out, as I said, kind of tone deaf, but it seems like after initially resisting, but then figuring out that they needed to work with, with the citizens, there's a, something of a, a working process with the city. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. I think- um, Tell me about it. I don't know exactly how long we, I mean, I think we've been meeting with the city, uh, the Cantrell administration, and then now um, additional city departments um, working towards uh, coming up with an agreement to work together to make a world-class cultural facility. Um, you know, the sp people spoke, we held charrettes and surveys and um, community meetings and um, we heard what the people had said they wanted and it wasn't government buildings in Armstrong Park. Um, you know, this is the birthplace of jazz. Congo Square is, you know, a sacred ground. And so um, I think we want to uh, work together to come to a master plan for the entire site so that it will honor the legacy of Louis, Louis Armstrong, as well as the um, importance in jazz history and um, African history, African-American history in our city. Um, and so we have been meeting regularly with the city and we are optimistic and hopeful that we are on the edge of um, coming to agreement on a contract and, um, you know, those announcements are going to be forthcoming, the timeline to try to move this forward in the next year and come up with a master plan that reflects the community vision. Um, and so, you know, we still have to shape what that looks like and um, want to keep the community abreast of these progressions and what, what's been happening. Give me some hints as to uh, what has been emerging from your conversations with the city, with cultural leaders, uh, citizens, 
to obviously you're you're nowhere near having a final plan and that's the whole idea is to make sure that when it's final it really does represent all these parties but um give me some uh feeling for the the kind of um trends and issues and the conversations that are emerging well some of the issues uh, so there are some interested parties who want to actually uh you know, be in the park and build, construct in the park. And so uh, we are also having conversations with them, including the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Foundation and uh, the Levitt Foundation. Um, and so the hope is that we can all, so, well, Save Our Soul Coalition actually worked together uh, with cultural organizations, the Tremaine Neighborhood Residents, um, and, and resident groups and French Quarter to create a sort of a design plan. Um, so we actually do have a plan and that will be the basis for the master plan. Um, and so the, the hope is that we have, you know, accurately reflected the neighborhood's wishes and the community's wishes and the citizens at large um, who have also commented on what they'd like to see in this space. And so that should be the guiding document for any master plan created. Um, the Greater New Orleans Foundation, uh, the city has been able to secure some funding from the Greater New Orleans Foundation and has also offered to, to you know, uh, what's the word, offer some money from the city itself and um, work together to find funding sources to create and, and complete this master plan. And so that will be um, an exciting process. And I think there'll be a number of stakeholders at the table. Um, including Save Our Soul Coalition, um, the state commission that uh, Senator Roy Royce Duplessis uh, was instrumental in amending. Um, of course, Councilmember Green is going to be involved because it is his district and the administration, Cantrell administration is on board and in support. Um, so this is an exciting opportunity, I think, to create a world-class cultural facility. A world-class cultural facility. And again, I, I think that might have been the words that were probably used a, a little bit in that initial effort that uh, came up with that kind of, quote, Tivoli Gardens uh, plan that never came to be. Um, Mahalia Jackson Theater did emerge. Um, the Jazz and Heritage Festival had their headquarters there for many years. Uh, there have been some festivals in the park. but. Um, Give me just a little bit more, a little bit more. Um... So I, I think, so the design vision is to create a world-class museum with spaces for cultural groups and culture bearers, uh, you know, not only musically and culturally, but also potentially, you know, culinary arts, visual arts. Um, and so, you know, and that, that that plan is centered more around uh, the redevelopment of the auditorium itself. And of course we are um, committed to protecting Congo Square, which the auditorium is actually partially built on. Um, and so we wanna, you know, we have um, amended the zoning ordinance, created a whole new zoning district for this area, for this entire park um, in order to protect. And there are specific protections that we put in place in the last two years that are going to help to protect those cultural community spaces like um, Congo Square. 
but on the inside of the auditorium we're envisioning, um, you know, having museum space, having uh, performance spaces, um, perhaps, you know, some uh, accessory uses um, and some, you know, I think that what we're, we're hoping for is to create something that is also equitable and that is gonna benefit the community, you know, something by the community and for the community. Historically, um, we know that they wanted to originally create a civic center here. And this was the beginnings of the civic center. And, you know, we know the history of that and, and demolishing the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, so we wanna make sure and every step of the way, we've really been trying to um, give priority to Treme residents because this park is located in Treme. Um, but I think that, you know, we're envisioning something for the people and by the people and, um, you know, having opportunity for the community to have input and hopefully save our soul coalition. Our, our hope and our role will be to help facilitate that community outreach through this process. And uh, give me some sense of uh, the timeline. But I think we're looking at um, into the end of 2024 to have, um, a strategic a strategic master plan completed and so uh, you know we're hoping to have our agreement with the city and with greater new orleans foundation hashed out in the next month a couple of months by december um and then um you know we would like to uh we're going to continue meeting with the city and there will be a um cultural commission uh, a commission formed by the city with all the the stakeholders that are looking to um, sign agreements with the city uh, for various aspects of the park and save our soul coalition. Yeah, I think that um, many times there's an effort to achieve a plan for a place in a city, uh, especially not just for cultural purposes, but for other economic planning, community, health reasons. And um, until you really do at some point, whether you're forced to or you do it naturally, um, get the community involved, that's what really makes something happen. I mean, I, I just see that happen over and over again when you know people initially just don't do the right thing in terms of engaging the community. Things don't really get off the ground. And then when you do, finally things come together. It's it's still not easy. I mean, we say come together, like it just happens. But um, as you've been describing, it's taking a lot of people at the table and uh, to really pull it off. And, you know, we're hoping to create a family-friendly space um, that the whole city can enjoy. But I also think we all are trying to protect and preserve this other piece of it where there is this deeper significance and this sacredness of this space you know i think it's an underutilized park and so it would be great to have an attraction there that both tourists and the entire city can enjoy and celebrate i'm just glad it's happening and i know it's important and uh, that good people involved so i look forward to um I'll try to make it for Thursday evening and uh, and keep track of what you're doing going forward. Good luck. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jean. Uh, um, hopefully I'll Thursday. see you and look forward, if I do, on Thursday. Soon. All right. Take okay. care.
Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. This is Jean Nathan. It's Cross Town Conversations. I love talking to our creative business people, and we'll keep on doing it. Tune in. WBOK. Crosstown Conversations. <laughs>